BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for another Benny J bonus interview brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. Of course, you could be listening to this anytime because it is a podcast. I'm just going to read to you the headline in today's newspaper just so you know what's going on in the world. Let's see. Should I do the Tribune or the New York Times? I don't have a Sun-Times here. I'll go with with the Tribune. I'll go local Chicago Tribune headline. Bears showing renderings for stadium team expects funding around complex in Arlington Heights. I'm laughing, ladies and gentlemen, because for once I, a Chicago taxpayer, will not have to be paying for some boondoggle. The people in Arlington Heights pay for their own boondoggles. All right. Uh, The conversation we're about to have will probably have absolutely nothing to do with the Bears, Arlington Heights, football or taxes. I'm pretty sure of that. But who knows? Who knows where the conversation will take us? Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. My name is Catherine Adele West. I am the author of The Two Lives of Sarah, and I am thrilled to be your guest today. Well, thank you very much for doing this. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just give a backstory here. So I got a uh, email from a publicist saying, hey, Ben, there's this book by a woman from Chicago. You want to read it? And I said, yeah, everybody knows I love novels. Everybody knows I'm an obsessive reader up to like two in the morning every night reading novels. I don't even like nonfiction anymore, Catherine. You know, that's what I did for most of my life. So I got the book. I started reading. I'm like, God, what a talent. And from (laughs) Chicago. Yes, I want this woman on my show right now. So one thing led to another, and uh, Catherine Adele West is here. The name of the book is Two Lives of Sarah. Uh, And I got to say this. I I don't know as an author, uh, Catherine, if you like what I'm about to say or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a great book. The cover is fantastic as well. I know some writers like, what about the book? Don't tell me about the cover. But this is a really cool cover. And just a little shout out to whoever's responsible. My wife saw the cover. She goes, oh, my God. Uh, I'm showing Kat. I'm showing Catherine the cover. She's like, Ben, I know what the cover looks like. The book right here. Well, oh. please keep showing it. Show, show me. It's uh, beautiful. <laughs> it's just talk. Let's give a shout out to whoever came up. It's an image of, uh, I would assume, Sarah. It's just a beautiful image with flowers in her hair. It's like a hippie thing going so talk a little bit about how the cover relates to the book before we take the deep dive of the book itself. Go. So the cover in and of itself has a young black woman on the cover. Uh, there are flowers and it's kind of a collage type of um, setup in, in terms of, of how uh, she looks. But it's just like a lot going on in her head and her mind and her heart. That's a lot of the things that it represents. If you pay attention they're like little newspaper clippings too from like the 1960s because that's when the story takes place. 
a lot of love went into it. And I have to give a shout out uh, to, to, to Park Row, who is my publisher and the art department. They just, they, they blew me away with the cover. It's slightly different. It's a slightly different rendering from what I originally got because there was like some pink in there at first. Um, but, you know, there were just like small itty bitty tweets. But when, when I saw the initial cover, we all knew that that was, it, it was it. That was, that was all, that was it. It mean, it's a cover that would literally make you stop in your tracks and take a look at the book and my words will do the rest to make you buy the book and keep it and talk to your friends about it. Yes. And please, folks, buy the book and keep it. Or if you're like me, you're mostly a library person, go to the library and order it. I'm, uh, I'm a big library person. So this book is probably on demand at the Chicago Public Library. That's where I'm uh, broadcasting from. So folks may have to wait a while. You know, this will take about three weeks. I know this book will be uh, in demand. It tells a story. I don't want to give any secrets away from the book. Catherine and I talked very briefly before we went on the air. Do not want to give away secrets. This is not a movie. Like I do this, Catherine, when we just talk about movies or TV shows. Like, okay, there's spoiler alerts, people. Because then people could just literally go out and see the movie. You get what I'm saying? But it's like one step extra to go buy the book or check it out from the library. So, folks, I'm not going to give spoiler alerts. Just going to tell this basic story. A young woman, Sarah, moves from Chicago to Memphis in 1963 with her baby son. Uh, she checks in to a boarding house in Memphis where, like, the coolest people in Memphis are living. And, well, one thing happens. You think it's going to be about peace, love? <laughs> one thing happens and another thing happens, and I don't want to give uh, anything uh, too much away beyond that saying, but it um, gets into a lot of issues of civil rights and uh, black literature, black music uh, from the night, the early 1960s, 1963. Great book, Catherine Adele West. So congratulations on that. All right, before we get into uh, some of the uh, issues that you raise in the book, tell, take a moment to introduce yourself to listeners. The book takes place in Memphis, but you yourself are, are Chicago. Am I correct in that? Yeah, born and raised in Chicago uh, from the South Side, you know, I would say born and bred, but born technically not sure was born on the north side. I don't like telling people that part. Um, <laughs> I was born at St. Joseph's Hospital on the north side, but I've lived in the south side like all my life. I'm a White Sox fan. And if you want to talk about football, we can talk about football. We can talk about how I'm so happy they got rid of Matt Nagy. That was like a waste of space for like five doggone years. I don't even understand why they didn't get rid of him like two years beforehand. Anyway, I am an avid Chicago sports fan, except the Cubs, because I'm from the South Side, so White Sox. Um, my mom was an English literature teacher. My dad worked for the post office. He was also a pastor. Um, my debut novel, Saving Ruby King, takes place in and around Chicago. And my first book, the debut, uh, Saving Ruby King, is literally like a love letter to my city, um, this is like my home, period, point blank. Um, and I'm just so happy to be from Chicago, a native Chicagoan, and I rep Chicago like wherever I go, period. Wow. Well, I am really gonna resist the temptation uh, to ask you bear questions, did not know you were a sports fan, did not know you were a bear fan, did not know you had opinions about Matt Nagy, so I will not talk about Mitch Trubisky and the fact that the Bears traded up to draft him over Patrick Mahomes, and he is now starting quarterback in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so I'm we're not going to talk better. about any of that, even I'm though I just better. mentioned it. Don't, don't, please don't talk about Mahomes. I'm still bitter about it. Uh, I, I'm, the next book better be a sports novel. That's all I'm asking <laughs> for. Um, so you're from the South Side. What high school did you go to? 
Morgan Park High School. I went to Wendell Green Elementary School, Morgan Park High School, and I got my bachelor's and my master's uh, of journalism from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So, Catherine, were you the kind of kid at Morgan Park that was already gravitating toward literature? Were you, were you on the, did you work for the school newspaper? Were you part of the poetry club or whatever, uh, that literary scene in Morgan Park? No, actually, I was more so part of the art and drama scene. So I was a part of the choir, the school choir, uh, did, a, did plays, and I was actually on the wrestling team for a brief period, but it, uh, it, it was too much of a time consumer. And it was kind of like making my grades go down just a little bit. And by just a little bit, I was like number 10 in my class. And I went from like number 10 to like number 12. <laughs> so then I was like, no. Um, yeah. So I was like a nerd, but like uh, like an artistic kind of nerd. Writing in and of itself was something I could always do. Um, there were three things I was really interested in. Marine biology. Mind you, I still can't swim, but I was very interested in that. Um, economics or journalism. And I had to pick, you know, kind of the path I wanted to do when I went to college. And write, like I said, writing was just something I could always do. Period. It didn't matter who my teacher was, what the subject was. I could just write. And it wasn't a problem. It was something I was very comfortable with doing. So I chose journalism. And like I said, got my bachelor's and my master's from my U of I. So I was like the artsy, um, nerdy kid um, in, in high school. But I had a great time in high school. Uh, and so when did you stop doing journalism and start writing fiction? Never actually did journalism. Listen to this. So I got both of my degrees in journalism. And I was all gun ho about like, I'm going to be a journalist. And, you know, thinking I'm like going to work for the Sun Times or the Tribune, like as soon as I get out of college, you're not knowing like you have to work your way up. So like you have to go to like a really small town and where they only pay you like $20,000 a year. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm not doing that. Um, so I went into public relations instead um, and eventually got a job as a Newswire editor. And I've had this, the same job for like 17 years. And in the midst of that in 2012, I was at a, I was at a wedding and with one of my fellow grads, uh, grad student friends. Uh, and she was talking about how she wrote this book and it was getting published. And I was telling her I was writing short stories because I still love to write. She's like, oh, that short story that you're going to write sounds like it should be a novel. You should write a book. And I'm like, I got two degrees in writing. How hard is writing a book? It is hard as hell. Can I say hell? Yes, you can. You yeah, can it was swear. hard as hell. Like, it was super hard. Like, it was... I literally set myself up thinking because I knew the mechanics of how to write an article and how to construct sentences, writing a, a book shouldn't be that difficult. It was so hard. The first, and I say this with pride, the first draft of my what ultimately was Saving Ruby King was hot garbage. It was just hot flaming gobbledygook mess with some nice sentences in yeah. between the gobbledygook mess and um I had never written a book before and um I just kept hacking away at the idea at the characters at the plot and eventually got to a point where it was less trash and more good sentences and eventually got my literary agent and we worked on the book a little bit more 
um, and then got my publisher, Park uh, Park Row Harper Collins, and they've published both books. And to write your first book and to get a literary agent in your first book, and then to get your book deal in your first book is like super rare. But I always jokingly tell people that I really wrote twenty books <laughs> before I got to the one right. that actually got the agent, et cetera. So, so Catherine, uh, God, you gotta give me a lot to uh, respond to, uh, but I'm going to jump in with the last point. Uh, so you said the first take of your first book, which is not this book. I have not read the first book, uh, but your first take was uh, garbage. Now, did you know it was garbage at the time when you were writing it? Or did someone who you gave the book to, to read tell you, uh, Catherine, this book is garbage. You got to work on this. In other words, when you were writing it, because this is a struggle for writers out there, you got to deal with the psychology of defeatism that creeps into your mind like a little poisonous snake. I know a snake doesn't creep. Anyway, uh, but you get the point, Catherine. Uh, so it, it uh, sneaks into your mind like a poisonous snake slithers into your mind like yes i knew you were gonna i knew you were gonna get the right <laughs> i'd get there sooner or later but uh was it something like you were like when you were tormented while you're writing and saying to yourself stinks i'm terrible i'm no good or was it something that after the fact somebody said to you you know you, you show flashes here but overall this sucks go ahead so i'm highly self-critical when it comes to my writing, I'm highly self-critical. When it comes to, say, my looks or my intellect, I have ego for days. <laughs> but when it comes to my actual book, I'm just, this isn't good enough. I need to fix this. How do I fix this? Um, I don't really share my writing with a lot of people. Um, and hindsight is twenty twenty. I have the benefit of looking back and saying, that was a mess. Like you literally <laughs> had a mess on your hands and you were just sending it out to literary agents. Yeah. So I have the hind, you know, I, I have the benefit of hindsight because sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at the initial drafts and I'm like, oh, but I didn't share my writing with anybody for the most part. And the few people that I did actually was just like, oh, you have something. You definitely have something here. I had literary agents say, you have to here. It's just you just got to work on it some more. You know what I mean? I decided to say like it was hot garbage. Nobody ever was that critical of me. I was that critical of myself. So Catherine, were you writing this while you had a day job? So you would like write during lunch breaks or write during weekends and night? How was the process? Well, with the two lives of Sarah, um, with both books, I have a day job, as I said, as a newswire editor. With uh, Saving Ruby King, uh, it took me five years to write that because I was writing it on and off. You know what I mean? Like I would write furiously for three months and like just stop for three months, then write again, then stop, then start, then stop. With Saving Ruby King, it's a whole new beast. Um, excuse me, with The Two Lives of Sarah, it's a whole new beast, right? Because now I have an idea as to what I'm doing. So I um, did what's called like pants. Saving Ruby King. So like, I didn't have an outline. I just flew by the seat of my pants and just wrote whatever. With the two lives of Sarah, it was heavily outlined. So basically what took me five years with Saving Ruby King only took me five months with the two lives of Sarah. So this would be my thing. I would go upstairs. Um, I would work because like we were in COVID. So I would work from 5 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., 2 p.m come back downstairs to my like reading nook or my writing nook 
and I would write for like three hours. And I did this like every day, seven days a week, six to seven days a week. Um, and I started in January and I finished by May. So it took me five months for the two lives of Sarah. Whoa. Let's just talk about five 30. That's when you would start your day. So five in the morning. Yeah. When I my okay. Five in the morning. Yeah. Wow. Give me that 30 minutes. Give me that 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, that like, this just, wow. What, what time do you go to bed? So it would be five to two work. 2.30 to 5.30 writing. Uh, I would eat dinner, talk to my mom, go to bed between like 8.30 and 9, get up and do it all over again. Man. Wow. But, Man. you know, I had a deadline. I didn't have a deadline with, with Saving Reeking. I had a deadline with The Two Lives of Sarah. Like, this book had to be done by June of 2021. Like, it had to be done. So... And was it a deadline where uh, an editor was calling you up and they said, not to bother you, but I'm bothering you. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. My editor, Laura Brown, is is fantastic. And she knew that I deliver. Right. So. um, So, you know, like I put that I really put that pressure on myself well, uh, to let's... do that. Um, if, if I'd have needed more time, I could have asked Laura and Laura would have given me more time to do it. But I put that pressure on myself and got it got it done like about a month or so beforehand now let's talk about that she knew that i would deliver i like the confidence uh in that statement uh and i know that so many writers that they may make an assertion of confidence like that but there are moments this book is um 300 pages roughly yeah, about uh, 320 or so something like yeah that. something like that so folks 320 pages is no joke Okay, you be like a page 150 and you're like, oh, my God, I got 150 to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to help. <laughs> uh, you know, and meanwhile, Laura Brown is, knows you're going to deliver. Okay, was like, did you ever have a moment like that, a crisis uh, in the middle of the COVID? By the way, it's in the middle of COVID uh, where you just had a doubt that you were going to make it to that final page 320 or whatever it is yeah I mean all writers have doubts no matter how much confidence you have in your craft um, sometimes it's hard to see that finish line um, I would do little things right so you know anybody who writes in Microsoft Word they know that they have the word count there at the bottom got rid of that I would only check that every uh, you know every so often uh, and kind of see where it was mainly I talked to my mom <laughs> like mom it's going to be okay. Everything's fine. You'll do it. Everything will be good. Like, you know, I just spent a lot more on a therapist, but I have my mom, she's free and she bakes. So, <laughs> um, you know, so uh, I mean, you know, I, and it wasn't just her, like I had my own sharing section. I had friends, I had family and, and, um, you know, whenever I was feeling kind of that lull and creative creativity or kind of that doubt, like I could always call on someone who could, you know, help me, um, you know, re-energize myself and I would come back. And plus, like I said, I had the outline. So I wasn't completely lost in terms of where I was going. Yeah. You know, it suggests that an outline is, you know, what, 5,000 to 10,000 words and, you know, flushing all of that out, you know? So um, if it if it wasn't for my, you know, my friends and family, maybe Laura would still be waiting for that draft. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, you know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm highly motivated, highly self, you know, driven so you know laura knew i would do it and i knew i would do it but sometimes when you know you do something you still need that 
little push. No, I understand. Uh, it's a combination of things, uh, the outside pressure, and but mostly it's the internal inside pressure. All right, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the background of the book. It's again, set in 1963 in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, actually, you know what? It's it's uh, actually set like in uh, 1960, 1961 to about 1963, 1964. Fair enough. Uh, three or four year uh, bracket there. Um, all right. So early 60s uh, in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, the uh, the protagonist of the book uh, comes to Memphis from Chicago. Uh, and then I'm not going to tell you anything else. Uh, all right. A couple things. Uh, I'm, I'm much older uh, than Catherine. And um, so the references that Catherine made are to my generation, not hers. So got to give you credit. Uh, your mother taught you something. Uh, because a lot of interesting references uh, that really uh, connected with me. And I'm going to ask you about a few of them, and then you riff on it, okay? So we'll start with Sam Cooke. Yeah. Uh, the great Sam Cooke is, uh, plays a role of sorts in the book. Uh, talk about why you included Sam Cooke and the significance of Sam Cooke to your story and just to the world in general. Take it away. Sure. So um, actually, let me riff on that, too, with Nina Simone. Mm. Sam Cooke and Nina Simone are, to me, the musical embodiments of Sarah and another character, Jonas. So Jonas kind of has Sam Cooke. That's his favorite musician. For Sarah, Nina Simone is her favorite musician. And if you kind of look at things that happen to both uh, Nina Simone and my character, Sam Cooke and Jonas's character, there are similarities there. Um, I'm an 80s baby, as uh, Ben uh, was, was referring to, um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, my, my uncle, my mom, my family didn't listen to, you know, old school music. So I knew about Sam Cooke. I knew a lot of his songs, Nina Simone. I knew a lot of her songs, but it was just a pleasure to delve into um, that discography from the both of them because there were some there were a couple of songs uh that I didn't know one of the songs referenced in the book from Nina Simone Black Swan didn't know that existed and it couldn't fit perfectly fit more perfectly with the theme of the book when it comes to Sam Cooke he was such an icon like you wouldn't I mean you know just oh he was a singer no he's also a civil rights icon change is gonna come that's Sam Cooke you know um, fortunately, like when he re- he wrote the song a little too late, um, for when the book took place, so I think it was like 65, 66 was like a change is going to come. And so like, I, I, I wanted to fit that song in, but I could, um, but there are quite a few, uh, references to Sam Cooke songs, to Nina Simone songs, to songs by Chief Willikers, Chubby Checker, the Marvelettes, Ray Charles. Um, Solomon Burke, Bobby Blue Bland. I had such a good time, such a good time um, researching a lot of the music in that book. But Sam Cooke is definitely one of my favorites. And the song Bring It On Home to me has special significance in the book, but the song has special significance to me as well. Like whenever I hear that song, you would have thought I was in the studio with Sam. The way that I emotionally feel when I hear that song played is, is you know, is... What is the connection some, there that, uh, that really touches you, bringing home to me? 
because it's such a song of of longing and loss and regret and those things uh, hang heavy within the book itself. Um, and also the way that I crafted the last scene, um, which I won't really mention, but it does reference that song specifically um, because it's it's such a thing. Like the first time I heard that song, I think um, it was in the movie Adventures in Babysitting with Elizabeth Shue, which was filmed in Chicago. And they played that song and I remember just really enjoying the song. And I was always like, man, like that song is so bad. But the older you get, the more life you live, the more love or loves you've had. That song hits totally different at eight than it does in like when you're 40. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that that was just me paying special homage to, you know, one of my favorite artists and one of my favorite songs was uh, was including it in the two lives of Sierra. All right, just to help out some of our younger listeners who may not know the song, uh, Catherine and I'll sing a little bit of it. So go ahead, Catherine. Mm-mm, why you do that? <laughs> I didn't, uh, no, it's okay. I was just I change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind. Oh, bring it to me. Bring your sweet loving. Bring it all home to me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you can sing. That's really beautiful. And by the way, for 10 trivia points, who sings backup on that song? Do you know? It's a oh, great trivia question. Say, all I want to say was Al Green. I can't remember. No, 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 no. no. Lou Rawls. Lou yeah, Rawls. dang. How did yes. you know that? Lou how Rawls. did you know that? Lou Rawls from Chicago. Yeah, it was Lou Rawls. Song. So I was like, how, no, 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 no. It was Lou Rawls. How did you know that? I'm, I'm really impressed that you knew that. Yeah. Um, because I said I did my research. When I said I did my research, I did my research. And I wanted to include Bring It On Home to Me, but if Bring It On Home to Me was written in 1965, I couldn't include it. So I Googled Bring It On Home to Me, and then I Googled how the song was made, the types of instruments used in the song, because I had to physically describe how it sounded because you can't really use song lyrics unless you pay money to use the lyrics in the book so the way that I got around it was to physically describe like did they use symbols it sounded like they used symbols oh yep they used symbols because you know if you look at Wikipedia it says like who you know who was playing the drums who was playing the piano who was playing what and some section they talked about the the background singers and that's how I remembered that it was Lou Rawls so I actually had to do research on a song that I already knew wow. in order to include it in, in the well, book I'm really impressed and the only reason I know that is this I'll tell you this story really fast I, first of all I love Lou Rawls and I will not sing any Lou Rawls songs because I would that would be a denigration of one of the great singers of all time yeah I like because uh, so uh, I'm a terrible singer but so one day I was uh, listening to the old I was driving the car I was listening to the old age radio station and bringing home came on and I love that song. I was just really listening for some reason, Catherine. Usually, I'll, it's like weird how my brain works when I'm in a car driving, like listen to music. Sometimes I just kind of sing along with the song or have the image of the singer singing or whatever. This time, I, for some reason, I started listening to the background. I, I, that's very rare for me. And I just was noticing how great the background singing was. I'm like, God damn, that's a good, wow, it's a good singer in the back. Who is that guy? And right? then I, I pulled over and I, I did the same thing you did. I Googled the song and I'm like, Lou Rawls. So quick text of my friend Cap loves Lou Rawls. Did you know? And of course he knew. Um, or he acted like he did. Who knows? 
Uh, all right, no, the Marvelettes. You got a little joke in there about the Marvelettes. Uh, someone calls them the Marvelettes. I say it's an old lady, not an old lady, but an older yeah, person. Yeah, calling the Marvelettes. Marvelettes. Yeah. Uh, is that like an inside joke or something in the Catherine Adele West world, or did you just make that up? No, I, I actually just made it up. It's kind of a way to reference that Mama Sugar is just a little hard of hearing, so that's why sometimes you have to repeat something to her or um, say something to her and she'll be like oh yeah this thing and then you're like no it's this thing and she'll be like same difference now same difference <laughs> grandma would say yeah. uh, whenever you know like now I never dare try to correct her my uncle tried it mm -mm, you don't do that Um, but you know if you would say something the way in which you said it like grandma do you mean this and then she'll be like she would say same difference right just oxymoronic but you knew what she said and you knew what it meant and that was just kind of a way to to pay a little bit of an homage to my to my uh to my grandmother my mom's mom all right well one person that really didn't get uh an homage paid uh to him is elvis presley who makes an appearance of sorts uh in the book uh, elvis of course is from memphis right yeah memphis tennessee uh that's where he got his start and uh why don't you talk a little bit about your attitude about Elvis Presley and the character's attitude about Elvis Presley, uh, the characters in the book, that is. So I understand that Elvis is a beloved singer, actor to a lot of, you know, people. And, bro, he could totally sing. I mean, I have Elvis songs. Like, I know Elvis songs, right? But the thing is, he made his money singing Black music, you know? Like, Rock and roll does not really want to acknowledge its roots in terms of black music. Like country music doesn't want to acknowledge its its roots in black music. Hip hop, R and B, soul music, funk music, fine, right? But if you get to rock and roll, it gets a little touchy, right? Because you know, white people will just be like, "No, this is like this is our music," and I'm like, "No, really, it's our music." <laughs> but you know, you you can go ahead, you know. Rolling Stone show us paying close attention to James Brown, but you know, no problem. That's that's fine. Cool. Just pretend like none of that happened. So I, I think I wanted to include a conversation about Elvis Presley that all Black people have. Like, yeah, Elvis is great. He ain't doing nothing but singing our music and getting paid for it while we try to sing it. You know, while we sing this music and we don't get paid for it at all and we get erased out of the history books or you know, not acknowledged for what we contribute. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just being completely honest about that particular conversation around Elvis Presley. You know, if, if, if you want to get mad, get mad. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. Uh, you're absolutely correct. And uh, I don't know if you saw this. It's floated around the internet. We talked about this in the show a couple times. I forget how it came up. Uh, but um, Ray Charles, who's also mentioned in your book, uh gave an interview i don't know how long ago it was a while back whatever uh with bob costas and uh bob costas the the, the sports announcer i don't know what he was doing interviewing ray charles whatever doesn't matter bob costas threw out a reference to elvis and i think when bob costas made that reference to elvis he was assuming that ray charles would respond in a positive way as if to say oh yeah a fellow genius, Elvis Presley, but no, 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 Ray Charles went to Catherine Ada Westway. Okay. And he wound up saying, Elvis is not the king. Elvis is a punk. And I'm like, what? 
Catherine, I was, I mean, I shared that with a lot of friends when I stumbled upon it. I was like, whoa, Ray Charles calling him out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it, it gets to be just frustrating to hear these people's names over and over and over again. You know what I mean? In reference, like to superior to your own. And you're like, I taught this person this, or he ripped this off of me doing this. And then he does it. And then it's recognized, but I do it and it's demonized, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So uh, all right. And so that's just some of the musical references in the book. There's also a lot of literary references uh, in the book uh, and Langston Hughes uh the poetry of langston hughes i'm looking up the name of the poem because it just popped out of my mind weary blues how could i forget weary blues uh and then the kid in the book will yeah will does this analysis of weary blues i'm like this is the smartest kid i ever met uh because it was a really great analysis like the question i think the question was why does he begin the poem with alliteration this is doing this from memory uh, why does Langston Hughes choose to do the poem with alliteration? And the kid has an answer. And I remember thinking when I read the question, like, yeah, why does he do the, the, cause I was, whatever, I was trying to struggle with that myself. So, uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, the significance of that particular poem and why you chose it for the book. Go ahead. Yeah. So I reference, as you say, a lot of full, uh, Hurston and Petri, Langston Hughes, Paul Lawrence Dunbar just a lot of African-American uh, literary uh, icons. But the reason I chose The Weary Blues was because it was one of the first Langston, poem, Langston Hughes poems I was introduced to as a kid around Will's age. And I had an awesome teacher. I had awesome teachers. Uh, named, one of them was named Miss Martin. Miss Martin was the one who asked me a similar question. And that's, that was my answer. So um, I literally just took myself, my particular experience when I was like 11, 12-ish or so, and just put Will in it and just said, okay, so this is, this is what I thought he was trying to do, you know, like read beyond the words. That's, a, you know, that was something that Will would hear. Um, that was something I would hear. My mom, once again, is an English uh literature was an English literature teacher and principal. So, you know, I was sitting up there reading Great Expectations by Charles Dickens at like 11 or 12. So, you know, I was uh, not forced, I was never forced to read, but I was always encouraged to read kind of beyond that particular level. Um, and that's what we wanted Will to do. And The Weary Blues is just near and dear to my heart because it was one of the first poems that I was introduced to um when when i was a child uh that and uh crystal stare yeah crystal, um, yeah. So, yeah it's a sad poem uh, a lot of license Hughes poems are sad and weary blues is uh, i would call it more so melancholy honestly like okay. they're, they're just like a super melancholic type feel um an atmospheric feel yeah i'm trying to remember the opening line can you do the opening line off uh, just the top of your head i mean i don't mean to call oh, it the way blues no i really yeah it yeah, is like alliterative I, yeah it, it, i uh, looked they, it up when i read your was reading your book i looked literally looked up the poem uh, yeah it was like it i i completely like it, it like i said it was definitely one of my favorite poems but my um but at that point i was starting to get into Gwendolyn brooks and nikki giofani and my angelou uh there's a quote in the book that I absolutely love, uh, Catherine, and I found it, and I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to riff on it for a little bit. 
and this quote is in regards uh, to black women. I'm going to tell you right now, this quote could apply to a lot of Jewish women. I know a lot of Italian women. I know a lot of Greek women. I know when I say women, I mean older mothers. So this quote works. This is like a universal quote. Mexican-American women out there. Come on. I know you're in this group, too. Moms. I'm talking about moms who hit a age about 50 or 60. I'm now going to do my best to do uh, justice to this quote from The Two Lives of Sarah. <clears throat> Mama Sugar is pulling her card. The one all black women over a certain number of years seem to possess. This implicit understanding that the weight of them in your lives and all the sacrifices they made, not only on your behalf, but on the behalf of others, outweigh your wants and desires. And you are not to refuse them when they ask you to do something without them verbally ask you to do anything. <laughs> it's a deep, absic stare. Wow, it's a tough word for me. Abyssic. Abyssic, yeah, like an abyss. It's a deep, abyssic stare. Maybe I'll get to use this card in another 30 years or so. Yeah, you probably will. Uh, oh, what a great riff. I read that. I go, oh, my goodness. This is, like I said, Italian moms, Jewish moms, Greek moms, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, explain uh, what's going on here uh, in this uh, section, Catherine. Yeah, so... Um... Mama Sugar uh, is is asking Sarah to, you know, go to, you know, revival. And uh, Sarah is something Sarah doesn't want to do because she has issues with the church and rightly so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Mama Sugar is just like, look, I don't ask you to do much. I am asking you to do this. And, you know, essentially is what she's saying. And, you know, she just kind of stare Sarah down I think the weight of who an, an elder is in our lives well I, I can only speak to the black community because that's where I come from um it, it holds it, it holds a particular value and you want to just say hell no I'm not gonna do this I don't have to I'm grown I'm an adult like Sarah's <laughs> at this point like she's a mother yeah. like she doesn't have to but but it's the weight of all that we know, all that's spoken and unspoken. And you know that you just have to do what is asked. Um, this is something that has happened to me countless times in my life. From my mom to my grandma to my aunts to women at church to even women on the street. You know what I mean? Like I've been dead tired. And um, there was like a really cool old lady that lived next to me, Miss Shepherd. And Miss Shepard was like in her 80s and kind of independent, you know, like independent, but half the stuff she did, she shouldn't have been doing, like carrying heavy stuff. So she just be like, hey, baby. Hey, Miss Shepard, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, Miss Shepard, I don't think you should be carrying a whole watermelon at 83. I don't think that's something you really need to be doing, you know. And, you know, so, you know, you would go help her, you know, I would go help her because like, you know, I had to, it's, it's my duty. Now I'm dead tired. You know, I've been up 12 hours, but that has nothing to do with what um, what she's old as an elder. More of a direct example is my aunt, my aunt Dorothy, and I love my aunt D-Dot. But my aunt D-Dot asking me to do things for our women's group at church. And I'm tired and I don't want to write letters to, 
you know, possible speakers and do flyers, but that deep abyssic stare that, you know, like the things that I've done, the things that I've been through, the things that I've helped with to help your growth, like you're not, you know, I'm not going to say no. So I do it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. And yes, it can apply across all cultures, yes. right? It's just, it's like the, the weight of sacrifice that is pinned against the weight of expectation. And it's just something that that's, it's a, it's a constant battle. Well, I, as I said, I spent most of my time on the show talking politics. And uh, one of the things that millennials or Z's uh, talk about when they come on the show uh, is bo- voter shaming. Uh, and so when I read this, I thought of the parallels of voter shaming and voter shaming in the black community. Is, I mean, there's voter shaming in every community one way. But voter shaming in the black community generally goes along the lines of you don't know how many people gave up their lives. So you would have the right to vote. So you better get it out and vote, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and voter shaming, I mean, just so you know, Catherine, a lot of millennials accuse me of voter shaming. It's, I stand guilty uh, as charged. Uh, so when I read this quote, I was like, yes, Mama Sugar, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll be there someday, uh, Catherine, as you say in this uh, about Sarah. Uh, yeah, like maybe in three years or so I get this card. You know, maybe when I'm in my, you know, like, 60s 70s 80s i can just be like i don't know i might use it for like petty little stuff like give me the tv remote and the tv remote is literally in front of me (laughs) right (laughs) like my big toe was acting up son you know like talking to my kid my big toe was acting up son can you pass me the remote thank you sweetheart you know yeah that by the way i've heard millennials of this do it about z's right now like they don't understand the next generation coming up that's like 19 and these are women or men who are like 29 or 30. I don't get these 19 year olds. I mean, you're kind of young to be saying, I don't get the next generation. I don't know. Maybe you should wait till you're 40 at least before you start talking that way. Well, uh, I think yeah. it's just one of those things that always happens when you're getting ready to hit 30. You start thinking like, ooh, the big 3-0. And like, what does that mean? And what if I don't want my life? I mean, that's one of the reasons I started writing. Like, what have I accomplished? What will be my legacy? Right? <laughs> So two books later, and now I'm basically in my 40s, and I'm like, okay, now I, at this point, know what I want to do with my life, and, you know, um, I'm able to do it. But in terms of the the whole generation thing, I think that I, I always look toward the younger generation with a sense of respect and with a sense of awe, because my generation wasn't wholly looked at like that, like by a few, sure, like my mom enjoyed things that my generation would do when she would like our music. My mom really enjoys, like, voice to me in an outcast and you know she'll be like oh did you hear that Wiz Khalifa song and I'm like this is why we should not introduce people to pop culture at a certain age I don't need you to talk to me about Wiz Khalifa now. like I love you don't do that like are you, are you like it's the cutest thing but it's like very like it'll just catch you off guard but I, I think like you know older generations have a tendency to start to look down on younger generations and I mean like you know that Socrates quote like you know youth of this day and age they don't Stand when elders walk into the room, they're lazy, they're forgetful, they don't do this. And I mean, Socrates is saying this, okay? Like, <laughs> you know, every generation says that, but each and every generation complaining about the previous generation or the, the subsequent generation, y'all raised this. So what are you complaining yeah. about? You oh. know, it's just like that really funny kind of thing where you're like, but you raised me. So listen, why are you upset with what I'm doing? Uh, so. Listen, I, 
I hear what you're saying. I, I'm a, a huge basketball fan, and I love Shaq and Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith, okay? So let me just get that up there front. And I watch them all the time. They're the only group I watch. They're, all the rest of them are just talking heads. I just turn them off. But those guys, I love them. You hear them talk about, well, these kids, they don't play the game like we played the game. And I'm like, I'm old enough to remember when you guys were breaking in. And the old timer said, you didn't respect the game, Shaq. Okay. Exactly. And <laughs> then know? when him and Kobe was going through like their whole little tiff and, you know, it was. Kobe was a throwback. Kobe Bryant was the throwback. I hate the Lakers. I'm just going to tell you this, Catherine. You may be a Laker fan, but I don't care. You know I what? You know what? I, I respect the Lakers. I, I, I respect them. Now, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan, but I do respect the Lakers. I mean, Magic Johnson was, you know, that that was like, you know, Magic versus Mike. Mike versus Magic, you know. Well, okay. I mean, all right. Yeah, I respect greatness. And uh, when Kobe, I always rooted against Kobe Bryant because he always annihilated my beloved Bulls. But uh, I had a tear in my eye when he dropped the 60 when he closed his career out because I'm with you. I respect greatness. I love greatness. You love to beat it, you know, so but I, I still hated him. I want him to lose. Right, right. Uh, right. OK. Uh, and but Kobe Bryant, even as much as I rooted against him, I saw on him. Like, there's very few total dedication to his craft uh, in an obsessive way. Like you getting up at five in the morning because you know you have to write four hours that day, you know, doing it every day. I mean, that there's just some people that have that drive. Stephen, Stephen King, who I can't keep up with his output, Catherine. OK, he's his writing book came out yesterday. The yes. same as mine. Like he had another book that came out yesterday. Like my book came out. Yes, yeah. I know. Uh, West and King came out on the same day. Let's think about that. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but so I have to, I'm with you hundred percent. Even if I root against them, I respect greatness. Uh, and uh, by the way, Patrick Beverly from Chicago is on the Lakers now. So I may have to root for them a little bit. Uh, and uh, Anthony Davis from Chicago is on the Lakers. So I might have to root for them a bit, a little bit. Uh, but as Catherine will tell you, her alma mater uh, has a player in the NBA and he plays for the Chicago Bulls. Yep. And I'm really rooting for him. I oh, I see you. Um, all right, Catherine, before I let you go, give folks one more time the name of the book, the publisher, where they can get it, uh, and all those good things. And if you're doing any appearances around Chicago book signings or what have you. So uh, take it away, Catherine. Thank you so much again, Ben, for having me. Um, once again, Catherine Adele West. My book is The Two Lives of Sarah published by Park Row HarperCollins, uh, wherever books are sold in stores and online at your indie bookstore at, you know, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon. You can go to my website, KatherineAdeleWest.com, and uh, you can get both of my books uh, on the site as well. I will be doing um, in-person events tomorrow at Women and Children First uh, on North Clark Street in Andersonville. I will also, on September 15th uh, at 6 p.m., be at Seminary Co-op. I will be at 7 p.m. I will be at Women and Children First tomorrow, September 8th. Uh, I would love to see all of you there. Um, and I'm just so grateful and so thankful to be a Chicago artist and to be on your show again, Ben. It's, it's been a true pleasure. It's such a hoot. 
Yes. And I just want to say this, uh, September 8th, unfortunately, uh, this show will drop after September 8th, but okay, I will no bet worries. you Catherine will sign books, Women and Children First. I know a lot of Northsiders, uh, she may have put down a Northside at the start of this interview, <laughs> but a lot of Northsiders listen to this show uh, and uh, people who live in the Edgewater area. Uh, so go to uh, Women and Children First, and I'll bet you there'll be some books signed by Catherine. I'm pretty sure Absolutely. they will have some books signed by Catherine. All right, Catherine, thank you very much. You passed the audition. I didn't, you probably didn't even know there was an audition, so you're coming back to the show. We'll talk literature, we'll talk music, uh, and we'll talk my beloved Chicago Bulls and Bears. Uh, so is that a deal? That's an absolute deal, Ben. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. Thank you very much, uh, Catherine Adele West, uh, for being on my show. Take care, Thank everybody. you so much, Ben. Have a great one. Thank you again, Chris. Bye-bye, all. Take care, Catherine. Bye-bye.